Welcome to Idaho Speaks, the place to learn about candidates and issues important to Idaho. My name is Ed, and I created this channel to overcome the media bias that plagues our communities and our state. When presented all the information, I believe you, the voter, will make the best decision for our future. At Idaho Speaks, we will give you the side of the story being hidden by mainstream media and big tech giants. My name is David Worley, and I'm the Southeast Idaho interviewer for the Idaho Speaks team. Our goal is to give you, the voter, as much access as possible to the field of state and local candidates around Idaho. Ed and I both do interviews, so if you as a candidate find yourself in a situation where you need to speak directly to the voters and are having trouble getting through the mainstream media, please reach out and we will do our best to get you on the program. We want to give Republican and conservative candidates a platform to communicate their ideas in a long-form format so that you, the voter, has the best information available to make your choice on Election Day. Idaho Speaks, your issues, your candidates, your state. With us today, we have Lawrence Wazen, who is the current Attorney General for the state of Idaho and is running for re-election. Lawrence, thank you for coming on the program. Thank you for the opportunity. I really appreciate it. Well, you've been on the program before and gave us a pretty good introduction of who you are. But just for some of our listeners who maybe didn't see your first interview or didn't listen in the first time, can you give us a, a brief account of you know who you are, how long you've been in office, and and why you're seeking re-election? Uh, I'm <clears throat> excuse me. My name is Lawrence Waz, and I am the Attorney General. And I was elected first as the Attorney General in 2002. My history is that I was born in Caldwell. I've lived my life in uh, Idaho, for, except for a few years that I was in college and uh, I served a church mission. Uh, other than that, I've lived in Idaho. I'm just, I'm an Idaho boy, about as Idaho as you can get. And uh, I went to the University of Idaho to, to the College of Law, graduated from there in 1985, and I've been in law practice for about just shy of 37 years. Okay. And I was first elected as the Attorney General in 2002. And I have served in that capacity. Prior to that, I was a deputy prosecutor. I had a private practice in Nampa. I was the Owyhee County prosecuting attorney and a deputy attorney general prior to my being elected. So I've been around a day or two. I've had some experiences practicing law. Okay, so I'm sure you get this question asked a lot, but um, some of our listeners are probably wondering, okay, 2002, that is a long time. Now, from what I understand, you are the longest standing attorney general for Idaho and Idaho's history. Is that correct? That is correct. So I guess one question that I'm sure you've been asked but want to hear is, why do you think you need another term? And are there things that you thought are left undone in previous terms? Or what's the motivation to continue in the position? The, the I have been the attorney general for a while, but there's really a critical issue. And that critical issue is the rule of law. And that is... Um, I have some opponents that don't really fully understand the implications of the rule of law. What that means is that the law applies to all of us. And as the attorney general, it's critical that we follow what the law says. That is, you read the Constitution, you read the statutes, and you actually do what they say. As the attorney general, you don't get to choose something else. And if we fail to follow the rule of law, we really become unhinged from our own constitution. That's a critical factor. Okay. So, you know, we're talking about, you know, how the law's applied. 
where do you see the, the ultimate origin of the law being? What's the foundation of the law? The foundation of the law, we, we talk about um, we have a constitution, and that constitution really forms the basis for our political laws as we have them today. And we also then in this state, we had a constitutional convention in 1889, and Congress passed a law called the Organic Act, which created us as a state in 1890. We became a state July 3rd, 1890. My duty, what I take an oath to do is I take an oath to uphold the United States Constitution, the Constitution of the state of Idaho, and to fulfill my duties, which are prescribed by law. I don't get to make it up. Yeah, And when you talk about what duties are prescribed by law, very specifically regarding the Attorney General, Idaho Code Section 67-1401 says that the Attorney General's duty is to represent the state. That's the word that the statute uses and says that the Attorney General is to represent state offices and officers and agencies and commissions and institutions and other state entities. That seems to be an issue in this case, particularly with some of my opponents who believe differently. And their view is that the attorney general should represent the people. And the answer is I do represent the people, but I represent them collectively. Why? Because I have taken an oath to uphold the law that says I represent the state and I represent the people collectively as the state, but not as individuals. Now, if I understand this correctly, so the attorney general obviously is a constitutional office elected by the people. And I mean, that was constitution. It doesn't really list out a whole lot of things it's, it, of what the attorney general does. Well, you said there's that clause that says the duties are prescribed by law. Actually, what the constitution says are two things. It says, okay. first of all, that I have constitutional duties. Yes. And then it says, and as prescribed by law. So the constitutional duties that I have are to serve on the board of land commissioners, the yes. land board, and also to serve as a member of the board of examiners. The duties as prescribed by law means that the legislature passes a statute and tells me what my duties are. And what I've just talked to you about, 67-1401, that is where the legislature said, and this is your duty, Attorney General. And I don't get to just ignore that. I yeah. don't get to change it. I don't get to add words. I don't get to take words away. I have to do exactly what that statute says. So your interpretation of that, as far as the statutes go, is that that is kind of, in, there are enumerated responsibilities. There can't be anything beyond it. It's not saying that the legislature is describing some, but there may be others, but these are the sole responsibilities. Well, that's not entirely what I'm saying either, because there are about 420 or so references in the Idaho Code to the Attorney General. Okay. So I'm not telling you those are the only duties that I have, but they are specified in that statute. And when the but you're lo- saying that if there's not a statute, there is no duty that's not linked to a statute. There are they are all linked to a statute because okay. that's what the Constitution says. Yeah. It says you have constitutional duties and as prescribed by law. Well, then it has to be prescribed by law for it to be a duty. Yeah, I just want to make sure I understand that correctly. So you're saying if there's not a law that specifies the duty, then you don't have that responsibility or authority. Well, with the this exception in that that is okay. in the Idaho Code, it also says in 67-1401, it's about subsection um, maybe twelve it's or thirteen. Somewhere in there. Yeah, yeah. So, but it, but but I also have common law powers. Okay. That so so 
those aren't necessarily defined in statute, although that statute says you have common law powers. So what are the common law powers? What, what, what was an example of a common law, or how would you define those powers and what are they? That they're not uh, terrifically defined. It's actually our uh, jurisprudence is uh, from England, and okay. so the attorney general had powers to do certain things, and so those are defined case by case. And so those are the common law powers of the attorney general. Uh, but typically, other things that we would do is, you know, uh, it is to give consumer protection. We have statutory framework on that, yep. is to run an Internet Crimes Against Children unit. There's a mm -hmm. statute on that. Uh, there's a whole variety of things. But statutory, the, the, uh, the common law powers would be uh, to represent the state, actually, is one of those powers. Uh, but in England, it was to act on behalf of the king. We don't have a king, so yeah. it it's related to those kinds of powers. Okay. Are there any other common law powers or examples that you give? Uh, I don't really. Be I mean, I understand it. It's it's not spelled out the way like constitutional powers are. Correct. You know, it is one of the difference between the British system and our system. Is Correct. That, you know, we have a, a constitution that's spelled out in black and white. They have the unwritten constitution as they describe it. Right. But uh, any, any examples you can think of? I of can't think that, of off the top of my head as, as to uh, common law powers, um, but that's what the statute says, okay? okay. <laughs> <laughs> so if that's what the statute yeah. says, that's what we do. Yeah, well, good deal. Um, so we talked about obviously our legal framework for Idaho and the United States in general. You know, it's a constitutional republic, a constitutional system. So the constitution is the highest law of the land, either the state or the nation, and then all of the law flows from there. And and let's understand that too. Our, yeah, the United States Constitution is the supreme law of the land, but within its sphere, with, within its sphere, exactly. Yes. And that is that there are powers. Uh, in the Constitution that are granted to the federal government. There are other powers that are reserved to the states, respectively, or to the people. Yes. So we have to keep those two things separate. What that really means is that we live in a dual sovereign society. And so the federal government is supreme. Yes, which is the point of federalism. Yeah, it's the yeah. whole point of federalism. Yeah. Exactly, because actually that comes into play as we figure out what are the responsibilities of the attorney general. So I guess when we're talking about this specifically, because I think this comes up a lot and there's a lot of examples from various attorney generals across the United States and Idaho's own history. When you have a conflict between these two different spheres you know, so obviously the federal government has some areas where it is obviously supreme, you Correct. know, levying war, raising armies and navies, international Correct. trade, diplomacy, all that type of stuff is obviously solely federal powers. But then there's areas, for example, like, you know, as you, you're a lawyer, you're familiar with the history of the Interstate Commerce Clause, for example, Correct. you know, how that has been expanded and stretched over the years. But what happens when these two entities collide, state sovereignty and the sovereignty of the federal government? How are those issues resolved? And does the attorney general have any role to play when those conflicts arise? And the answer to your question is yes, the attorney general does have a role. And by statute, I represent the state. Yes. And then that's very clear and very straightforward. So what would happen under those circumstances is that we would file an action or maybe be the recipient of an action, that is a lawsuit, mm -hmm. in which we then go to court and under the judicial powers, the judiciary would make a determination of whether that is state power or federal power, how that yeah. works out. So does that make, does that make sense? Have yes. I explained it in a way that you understand? So does the attorney general, do you decide when there's a conflict between those two, when you sign on to, you know, there's something, there's multi-state lawsuits, 
or if the if Idaho decides to sue the federal government because of an area where it looks like the powers of the state of Idaho have been infringed upon by the federal government, is do you view that as being your decision as the attorney general, or is that something that you only do at the behest of the governor or the legislature? No, the way the law, law operates is that is the attorney general as the legal representative of the state. That's my decision. Okay. But I also have clients. Yeah. By law, I have clients because it says I represent those state boards and commissions and so sure. on and so forth. So, and also I represent the governor upon his request. So when I have a client, as a lawyer, you also talk to your client and you yeah. say, what do you think? I mean, your, well, your lawyer doesn't just go out and make decisions without talking to you. Yeah. And so we have to take into account what the wishes of that client are. Ultimately, the decision may lie in my hands, but I have an obligation to communicate with those clients. Okay. So I just want to make sure I understand this. So you're saying that you, although you have that authority, you you would not go and engage in those types of actions unless you had the buy-in of the governor's office. He's the client you consult with first before you join a multi-state lawsuit or sue the federal government? That's that's not accurate in every instance. Okay. Uh, the the governor is my client, but let me get, we're talking about the rule of law and what the yeah. law says. What the law says is in Idaho Code Section 14, uh, 67-1406, says that the governor may access the legal services in my office upon request. Sure. So I don't have a choice in that. The governor has a choice. He can have attorneys outside my office or he can have the attorneys inside my office. All he has to do is request. So I represent the governor when he requests. So that's the first level, yeah. okay? Secondly, it is uh, there may be a variety of agencies who may have an interest in a particular legal matter before the United States Supreme Court. And it really is incumbent upon me to discuss with them what their views may be and how they want to proceed. So it's not just the governor, but it is those agencies, commissions, boards, institutions, et cetera, that I also have to take into account talking with them and then ultimately making a decision. So you're saying that because those are the people you're representing, whether it's the governor or an Idaho agency of the state, that you you wouldn't you don't unilaterally go and you unilaterally can't decide whether or not to sue the federal government or hop onto another lawsuit that's being done by other states. There are times when I can make that decision, and there are times when I need to talk to my clients. Okay. So what would you say is kind of like the discriminating line between that, or what's what's a case where you'd say, hey, this definitely I should I can't do this without consulting the governor, or there's a case where you say, well, hey, this is totally within my authority where I got to I gotta take action. That really depends on what the subject matter of the lawsuit is. Mm -hmm. And do we have, is there a state agency that is responsible for that area of uh, state law? So that's how I make the determination. If there is, I, I really need to talk to them as my client. Okay. Now, from what I understand, you've been clear in um, you know other interviews and things like that, that you do not represent private individuals. Correct. I don't yeah. represent you in your divorce. I don't represent you in your property dispute with your next door neighbor. I don't represent you in contract claims. That's not how this operates. In fact, when the statute says I represent the state and it lists out the entities that I do represent, that means that I don't represent individuals. It's very, very clear. So is that a unique feature of how the attorney general's position is described in Idaho constitution and law? Because there are other states where, you know, the attorney general will sue on behalf of 
you know, the people of Texas or the people of Georgia? Um, is that something that's just unique to our constitution or, or what's the difference between us versus other states? I, I can't tell you that I've examined other states statutory structure. Okay. Uh, so you'd have to, you know, discuss that. I know what I'm asking because people, I think people see other states doing things and yes. then they, and, and again, I know some of this might be, every state has its own constitution for a reason. You know, uh, I lived in Virginia for 12 years and Virginia's constitution is very different from Idaho's. You know, it's, it's a, Half of it was still written by Jefferson. You know, obviously it's different than constitution written in 1890 here out West. Uh, so that's what, the only reason I'm asking is because I think sometimes people see, you know, a political leader in another part of the country doing something and they automatically assume that their state has that exact same ability or that exact same office holder. So I just want to see if you had looked at that at all. Or, or are we uniquely, is your position unique compared to other states or not? Every state is different. And um, sometimes um, I will tell you that there are attorneys general uh, in the country, both uh, in the left-hand side of the political category and the right-hand side of the political category that see their office as uh, a political stepping stone. Um, in fact, some of the discussion is, say, hey, you're going to be with me when I uh, am interviewed on uh, Fox News. Uh, my view is that is not an appropriate way of determining whether you join a lawsuit or, don't, or not join a lawsuit. You file a lawsuit. It's not a policy suit. It's not a yeah. philosophical suit. What it is, is is there a, what are the facts and what's the violation of law? If there's a violation of law, then we, jo then we would join. And it's typical that if someone's violating a law in Texas or Georgia or, uh, you know, Pennsylvania, mm -hmm. then they may be, uh, violating a law here. So we do have um, multi-state lawsuits of that nature. But just because one state says there is an interest here in my state doesn't mean that there's an interest in Idaho, where all every state is different. The law is different in every state. So it, just because other states join doesn't mean that we should. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't. We should look at each of those individually and say, what are the facts? What's the law? So I'm not familiar with all of Idaho's the history of the office, obviously. <laughs> um, I'm, not, I'm not a lawyer by trade. So what's the last, um, and I'm just actually purely curiosity because I don't know. What was the last pushback that we had successfully from Idaho being able to either sue the federal government or push back against federal overreach, either part of a multi-state or single state? We sued the federal government over um, the vaccine mandates. Um uh, and in fact, I had someone come up and very angrily say, why didn't we join? Well, the answer is we did. In fact, we were part of the group that took the, uh, the OSHA case to the United States Supreme Court and won. Uh, so we, we readily join when we have legitimate cause of action. So what does that look like? And I'm just asking this because, I, I mean, how does this work? When you join the multi-state lawsuit, I think a lot of our listeners won't be familiar with the nuts and bolts of this. Is that where we're providing legal resources to support the lawsuit, or is it that we just sign our name to it, or what exactly does it all entail? It comes in both of those flavors. It depends okay. on the lawsuit and who, where it's filed, and we oftentimes participate in briefing. Sometimes we're just simply signing our name and say us too. It just depends on the nature of the lawsuit. Okay. Now, is there a role to play when the legislature – they are drafting legislation. Do they ever send it over to your office to, to all the time to check? 
All the you time. Know. And with that, I have a whole staff that's dedicated to doing that. And so they're checking for constitutionality sure. and those types of things. There's, or conflicts with other statutes, those types correct, of things. Correct. There's actually two elements here. Okay. First of all, Idaho Code Section 671401, which is by statute, it says that I am to give a legal opinion. That's a legal opinion, not a personal opinion or a policy okay. opinion. A legal opinion to uh, each each House, the Senate, and the House of Representatives, and any senator or representative, and then mm-hmm. also a number of constitutional officers upon their request. So what that means is when a piece of legislation is proposed, any member of the House or the Senate – Republican or Democrat can, or independent can come to me and ask for an opinion. And I'm required by the law to give them a legal opinion. It doesn't say this is a good piece of legislation or a bad piece of legislation. It says, does this fit within the confines of the Constitution? Does it interfere with other statutes? It's not my personal view. It is a it is a legal document that is saying, here's what the law is as, as, it, excuse me, as it applies to this proposed legislation. So obviously at this point, when you're running your legal opinion, and we see this in courts all the time, and yes, the AG's office is different from a court, but even even though you don't have judicial powers, you're essentially being asked a similar type of questions go before courts, whether or not something is constitutional or conforms to the current body of law. So someone's philosophy on law obviously plays a role whenever someone is rendering a legal opinion, because there are different ways of looking at the laws we've seen over the years. Um, so how would you kind of describe your general legal philosophy? Well, first of all, I'm not sure that that's uh, accurately stated. Uh, well, I mean, let's look at the Supreme Court. You have people who say, I'm, a, I'm an originalist. I want to see how the Constitution reads as written in light of what the language meant at the time, what the, you know, I'm looking to the Federalist Papers. An originalist would say, I'm looking at the Federalist Papers. I'm looking at the constitutional debates. And then you have the other end of that spectrum, which is, no, this is the, the living, breathing Constitution. And I'm looking at whatever the last you know, opinion was, even if it was five minutes ago, and it went against the past 100 years of precedent. I mean, so there's obviously a difference in legal philosophy yeah, there, from person to person. I'm, and I would agree with that. But here's what my job is as the Attorney General. Yeah. My job isn't to have a living constitution. I don't have the power to amend the constitution. I don't have the power to amend a statute. My job is to look at the words that are written and say, what do those words mean? Also looking at the case law that the court who has the power to interpret that, what they have said that means. And then I have to look into a crystal ball and try and predict what the court's going to say about this question that's in front of us. That's what I have to do. Okay, so that's interesting. So you're saying that when you're rendering an opinion, you're not just looking at the text and even the legal precedent around the text of the law, but you're trying to make a predictive move of what the court would or would not say. I wouldn't say that's in addition. I say I would say that's exactly what you're trying to do. You yeah. have you have language, okay? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the dog ran down the street. Yeah. Okay. So I have to read what those words are. The dog ran down the street. And then I have to say, okay, what has the court in the past said those words mean? And then I say, okay, does that make sense? And where are they going? What are they going to say about that now? And because my job is to say, okay, here's what it says. The dog ran down the street. And in the past, this is what the court has said about the dog ran down the street. Mm -hmm. And 
the best we can figure out that the court's going to continue to say that, or there's a trend that it seems to be saying something else. So that's what I, and I'm not making the determination of whether this is good or bad legislation. What I'm trying to do is tell you, the person who's writing that, these are the things to expect in that, in that legal spectrum. Does that make sense to you? So it does. Um, but it seems odd to me that if we're looking for a trend, you know, that seems like then you're at some point you may not be looking at the text. You say, okay, so the law says the dog ran down the street. And then what if you're, you know, 10 opinions in, and then by the time you're at the 11th opinion, says the cat ran down the street. When you can read the plain language, it says the dog ran down the street. And we've seen that evolution oh, absolutely. with all sorts of stuff, with other jurisprudence on right. all sorts of legal cases where you start out with the text. And then by the time you're, you know, 50 years of precedent later, it just does not resemble the text at all. So does that play a role at all in what your analysis is? No. And okay. because I have to start with the text and that is the dog ran down the street. Yeah. And so I can't, I don't get to add words and I can't redefine the term dog as cat. No, not you. I'm saying if a judge has already done that. Judges, judges have done that. Okay. Yes. So what so. I have to do is I start with the dog ran down the street and then I say, and by the way, this court said that a dog was a cat. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but yeah. I'm not saying that a dog is a cat. Okay. I'm saying the dog ran down the street, but but it, it but I need to let you know that the legislator or the person mm -hmm. that but here's what another court said. Okay. Does that make sense to yeah. you? So I'm not I'm not interposing my own personal view. What I'm trying to do is say, um, but here's a place of caution for you because this is what has happened in the past. Okay. Yeah, the reason I'm asking is because this is this is a point of contention. I mean, um, some people do look at the law and they go, wait, you know what? I don't care if the law says that a dog ran down the street. I'm going to look at what the last judge said, and I'm going to render my legal opinion based solely on the last judge. Right. Let, let <laughs> me give you a yeah. quote. I was, in a, I was in the audience when I heard a member of the United States Supreme Court speak. He, yeah. he is uh, – He's re retiring uh, very soon. And I heard him speak, and he said, I don't care what the founding fathers meant. The Constitution means what I say it means. And wow. I, was, I was stunned. I was floored. Because our founding fathers wrote words on a page. Those words have meaning. And one of the aspects of the Constitution is a provision for amending it. And, and that's not a power of the United States Supreme Court. It's not a power of an individual. It is a power that resides either in Congress or in the states. It does not lie in the hands of a single judge. No, that's, um, that's incredible that a judge would even say that. I was just stunned. So, you know, speaking of that, the power of the judges versus the power they do and do not have. Um, where do you stand on the concept of judicial supremacy? Again, this is something that kind of gets tossed around. There, there's some states that say, hey, you know what? The Supreme Court is what it is. Sometimes they get it right. Sometimes they get it wrong. We're just going to do what we think is constitutional. There's other people who say, no, the Supreme Court is the final arbiter of the Constitution. And once they say what they say, that's the way it is. Where, where, where do you kind of come on that debate? Because that, that does influence how these opinions play out and right. how you use the state's legal resources. In the, Idaho, in, the, excuse me, in the United States Constitution, Article 3, Section 1, it says that the judicial power of the United States 
shall be vested in one Supreme Court and such inferior courts as the Congress may, to time, may from time to time ordain and establish. The Constitution gives a power to the court. It is called the judicial power. Article 3, Section 2 says that, among other things, the judicial power includes the power for the court to decide cases that arise under the Constitution. So that means that that's the jurisdiction of the court. So yes. The court has the power to make this decision. I think some of the decisions made by the Supreme Court are right, and I think some of them are wrong. Otherwise, we wouldn't be arguing in front of the court. <laughs> yes, obviously. So when the court makes a decision, the power to make a decision includes the power to make the wrong decision. That doesn't mean that it's mm -hmm. a good decision, but otherwise it's yes. not a decision, right? So the court makes a decision. There's two ways in which that decision can be changed. One of them is that the court changes its mind. The other is that we change the language either of a statute or of the Constitution, if it's a statutory or constitutional yeah. question. But that's the proper way in which our system says we will change that outcome. So my view is that when the court speaks on a matter where it has the jurisdiction to answer the question, that is the law until, we, until the law is changed either by a decision by the Supreme Court or by altering either the statutory or constitutional framework. So I understand the judicial power in terms of specific cases and controversies, mm -hmm. which is the language that of the shows Constitution. up. Yes, and shows up repeatedly in the Federalist Papers. Right. Um, but it seems that we have expanded that power to where, you know, it's one thing to say, hey, this law is unconstitutional. Let's say, you know, I'm, I'm the victim of an unconstitutional law in the course. I'm going to give David Worley relief. And, you know, you cannot enforce this fine or prison sentence or whatever it is. But that seems completely different than being than saying that an entire law or an entire, you know, provision of a state constitution, for example, with, uh, you know, same-sex marriage, you know, we have marriage defined in the Idaho Constitution between one man and one woman. But then the Supreme Court says, no, we're going to, you know, basically say that every state that has that same constitutional amendment, uh, we're going to supersede that. That seems more like giving the judicial branch legislative power or even super constitutional power that isn't outlined in the document. Um, l let's go back and I'm, yeah. the, I'm the guy that litigated that on behalf of the state of Idaho, by the way. Yeah, well, I, I, that's part <laughs> of the reason. I'm glad we have you here. Let's, let's talk about it because I want to know how this works. So, um, and I think a lot of our listeners do too because it seems that the way we treat the Supreme Court now seems separate from the original vision. They have way more power than both the Constitution would imply and the Federalist Papers spell out. I mean, they're described as being the weakest branch of the government. Hamilton says that over and over. But now we treat them like they have the power to strike down laws, make laws, make policy. And I, I don't know. How do we square that? Yeah, one of the other things uh, that the Federalist Papers talk about, though, is that the uh, judicial branch of government was a check on the legislative branch of government. Sure. Uh, not on the executive. They are on the executive, but really specifically on the legislative branch yeah. of government. So we passed a constitutional amendment in this state mm -hmm. that, that defined marriage as between a man and a woman. Yep. 
my duty, my obligation uh, is to defend the policy choices made by the people in that instance, which is what we did all the way to the United States Supreme Court and, and made the legal arguments in defense of our Constitution. The court uh, in that instance says, yes, but, and by the way, defining marriage was a traditionally state matter. Yes, it has been for 200 you know, years. The entire existence yeah, of the Republic. Exactly. And even prior to that, it was a, it was a colonial responsibility. Correctly, yeah. correctly. So what the court said in that case was that, yes, but the 14th Amendment says that you have to treat your, that states are required to treat their citizens equally, and this is not equal. And so I disagree with the court. Mm-hmm. But the court also made the decision saying that this is an issue that arises under the 14th Amendment of the United States Constitution. So we are back to the, the two issues that we talked about. How do we change that? Well, there is, will the court change its mind? And number two, uh, making an alteration to the document itself, the, the Constitution. So you've on the camp that the Supreme Court truly is the final say, barring those methods of modifying it. I, I think that that's the only uh, way that we can uphold the rule of law. If the court has the power to make that decision, then it's really incumbent upon us to comply with that and use the political means at our disposal to then alter the outcome. If we don't do that, then we really have a system of anarchy. And, you know, uh, there's some states that decided they didn't want to be part of the United States anymore. And they've started some events at, a, you know, 1861 at Fort Sumter, South Carolina. And it ended at Appomattox Courthouse, Virginia in 1865 and killed about between 700 and 800,000 people. And prior to that, there were also states in the north, though, who said, well, the Dred Scott decision is a horrible decision. And we're not going to hand over free blacks and send them back to the south. So, I mean, I, I, yes, I understand, but it cuts both ways. You know, there were the rebellious states in the South, obviously, who didn't want to recognize federal sovereignty on key issues. But there's also the northern states who defied the court in ways were very virtuous. Yeah, well, I, and I'm not telling you that. Uh, <laughs> you know, because I, I don't think we want to say, oh, well, you know what? Supreme Court said blacks are subhuman. So, therefore, hey, northern states, round up all your, all, all your runaway slaves and send them back to the south. Like, that doesn't seem the right answer either. But that's where this leads if we say the Supreme Court is supreme in all circumstances whatsoever. I, 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 didn't, I didn't say that the Supreme Court is supreme in all circumstances whatsoever. Well, once they rule. And and that's that's not what I said either. <laughs> oh, 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 well, I'm talking about within their sphere as you as you've outlined it because I think this is a this is something I, the reason we're talking about this extensively is because there's a lot of contention about this. I mean, we're looking across the states and you see I think there's something that's going on in red states, which I think is you know we're a deep red state, and we look over at the you know blue states like California and go, well, wait a minute, California's over there completely violating federal drug law, completely violating immigration law, flying in the face of all sorts of federal statutes, and then we're supposed to be over here living under the heel of the federal government, whatever they tell us that, to jump, we say how high. I think that that's the perception. That may be the perception, but let's talk yeah. Let's talk about yeah. California and the drug laws. Let's yeah, start yeah, off yeah. with that, that's, okay? Yeah. I know you covered this in other places, but it, it just comes up over and over yeah. again. I think it's a question a lot of people have. California itself is not violating federal drug laws. So, and listen to me yeah. so, so that I can explain that. 
we live in a dual sovereign society. You have sure. the federal government's a sovereignty and the state is a sovereignty. So when California passes a law, Colorado, Washington, Oregon, that says we're not going to have uh, criminal laws against drug usage, marijuana as an example, that doesn't violate the federal law. The federal law still exists. It, marijuana is illegal in every state in this country. Yeah. Under federal law. Sure. What California is saying is it's just not going to be a crime under state law. So and that, that they won't enforce federal law. Well, and, but they, can't, they don't enforce federal law anyway. Uh, federal law is enforced by the federal government, not by the state government. And so, yeah, but the law enforcement agencies participate in the enforcement of federal law under certain circumstances. They like, can participate yeah. in, in uh, for, a, for example, a search warrant, but, but the federal yeah. laws are not enforced by the state yes. government. They're enforced by the federal government. So by decriminalizing marijuana, and I, I, I don't support that, by yeah. the way, but what the state has said is that's not a state crime. It's still a federal crime. So there's misunderstanding about what that means when you say, well, you know, they're, uh, they're violating federal uh, drug laws. The answer is they are not. Uh, I'm not saying that's a good policy. I'm just saying that what they've said is it's a, not a state crime. The federal crime still exists. So doesn't that get kind of a little more complicated, though, when you're saying, okay, under federal law, marijuana is illegal, as an example. Mm-hmm. And I understand what you're saying. They're not violating federal law when they pass a law saying, well, under state law, we're not, it's not illegal. But don't you cross that boundary when you start issuing business licenses to, you know, people to grow and distribute marijuana? Now it now the state is giving legitimacy to an activity that is banned by the federal government. Is doesn't that cross that barrier? It does not cross the barrier because the federal law still can come in and prosecute those people. You can't go into court, to federal court, and say, I'm immune from criminal prosecution because I have a business license from the state. What you can go into state court and say, I'm immune from state prosecution because I have a business license from the state, but it doesn't violate the federal law. The federal law still exists. So just so even the state legitimizing the activity still you'd argue doesn't violate it. That, that doesn't it doesn't violate the federal law. The federal law still exists, and if the federal government wanted to enforce its own law, it could come in and file criminal charges against someone who has a major marijuana grow operation. Yes. Yep. And and his defense cannot be, hey, I've got a business license from the state. The federal government says that's irrelevant. This is a dual sovereign society that may apply in state court, but it doesn't apply in federal court. So we're talking about the dual sovereign sovereignty society, and you know we talk about that makes sense. You know this whole purpose of the federal system and why we have state governments anyway, or else it'd be a you know a truly uni- a unitary system like you know the countries. But going back to this idea of judicial supremacy within their judicial powers, if that's the case, don't we end up at some point? I mean, I think some people would argue right now we almost have a sole sovereignty system because, you know, once you think about that power we've given them, we have an amendment. So this is in our state constitution, whether it's same-sex marriage or any other provision, once you've given the federal government, even the court, the power to control your state constitution, I mean, doesn't that mean now there's really only one sphere? Well, um, I, I don't think that we're quite at that point. I uh, understand what the argument is, but 
Let me give you some examples. Okay. We just filed a lawsuit against the federal government because uh, they issued a, two executive orders and a directive on vaccine mandates. Yes. And and ultimately, the court said, "Yeah, your states, you're right." In fact, when on the OSHA case, uh, the court said, "Yeah, we're going to issue a stay." And by the way, uh, states are going to win this case because this is beyond the authority of OSHA. Yeah. And and so. Have we pushed back? Yeah. So in, in at least in that instance, we're not a sole sovereign issue, right? Yeah. We, the states pushed back and said, hey, we're here. We're part of this union. And no, OSHA, you don't have the authority to do that. And the court said, you're correct. Yeah, I, I think those are separate issues, though. Just because you win sometimes doesn't mean we haven't ceded that power, though. You know, because now we're at the whim of the court. What if the court would have ruled the other way? Well, if the court would have ruled the other way, we'd have kept litigating the issue on the substance. Uh, one last thing on this issue, because I think that this is this is, this is a big issue of our time. You know, I think this is what's coming up, you know, in issue after issue, whether it's environmental policy, whether it's, you know, commerce or taxes. I mean, there's all sorts of different areas where it seems like these two spheres of government are rubbing probably more than they have, you know, historically. And I don't know, you've been in for 20 years, maybe you can tell me. It seems like we're having more of these conflicts between the federal government, federal and state power I'm not than gonna, we have in the past. I'm not going to diminish the the conflict. Or maybe it's, maybe it's their intensity is the issue. Maybe it's not the frequency, but the intensity of the conflict. Yeah, I'm not going to di- diminish the, the, the frequency or intensity of the conflicts we have with the federal government. But I would say that during the time period of of um, Roosevelt when they were when all of this oh, was generated. Yeah. Oh, that, that's a good point. That's where most of this came about that's from, that, from FDR's administration. Exactly. What you and I are talking about was generated in the 1930s and into yeah. the 1940s. Yep. Uh, and you talk about uh, you know what the Supreme Court and the switch in time saves nine and all of the other stuff that went along but, with but that, that. But that's a good point though. Is that really we're talking about a period of conflict that is only comparable to the the 30s yeah. so it has been a long yeah. time and and you talked about the commerce clause and you and the expansion of the commerce clause now that also comes out of the great depression exactly yep. comes out yeah, of trying fdr to control, trying to control wheat prices exactly yep. exactly so. <laughs> wheat prices most people don't know that yeah. but that was it <laughs> yep yep that was no, it I'm, I'm not a lawyer i just I, I read a bit but i'm not a lawyer okay so uh so let's go back to um this conflict between you know state sovereignty and federal sovereignty so Something that gets called for, you know, and again, you're not the policy guy, but we're talking about, you know, the the law. So you see some states like Florida is the example. It's always being put out there. And, and you know, I think that Ron Sanders has done a lot of great things in Florida, but I want to hear your what your legal opinion on this strategy is, where Florida anticipating even, you know, the, I think the OSHA rule had been written yet, and Florida preempted the federal government by banning the vaccine mandates in Florida. Um, does that create, is that a, is that a tension that is, I guess what I'm asking here is with, they put out the OSHA mandate and now you have an OSHA mandate versus state law. Is that something that has to be adjudicated in the courts or is that automatically one or the other has supremacy? Um, the ultimate determination of supremacy will be determined in a court. That that's how that happens. Uh, I don't make the policy of yeah. of that. That's that's a, a gubernatorial well, well, let's, legislative well, let's function. Throw, I'm not asking you to write a full opinion on the fly here, but okay. you know, because this got thrown around the Idaho legislature. Yeah. There are legislators who propose legislation very similar to Florida's. Right. right. Um, you know, when they send that asking for 
whether or not that's constitutional or what what your, what's your legal opinion on that on that strategy not the policy but just right. legal opinion on that strategy it would depend on what the, what the subject sure. matter was and whether that well, let's is. let's show the example of the vaccine <laughs> mandate is is that type of strategy in your mind as from from your office's perspective is that a viable legal strategy to protect the rights of the people of a state or is that something that you think has inherently constitutional issues? There are inherently constitutional issues. I'm not saying that it's a good strategy or a bad strategy. Well, okay, sorry. Good and bad in terms of legality, not good and bad in terms of policy outcome where people are trying to do. I know, right. I know we're, we're, we're talking about the law. We're not talking about policy formulation. Yeah. Uh, there would be instances where that would be useful. There are other times when I think that uh, that the um, federal law would prevail depending upon, again, what the subject matter was. And so I, it's difficult to just give yeah. you one answer to a bit. Oh, like, let's, let's, in the case of the vaccine mandate, what do you think? Well, I think that we actually ended up coming out pretty well on that in terms of we said, no, the federal government, you don't have the authority to do that. And, and so a, a statute can be helpful. Yeah. Under those circumstances. But was it necessary for us to have a statute? It really wasn't necessary because we were able to take this and go to the court and say, this is beyond their scope. In terms of the federal mandate, yes. And I guess since we're asking- And and that's what you were asking about. Yes, exactly. But I want to move on to another side benefit of the legislation, which also gets called into question of whether it's legal. I've heard kind of different arguments about it because you're the AG. And I'm not, again, I'm asking you to write a full opinion on the fly. I know that that takes- that's a whole lot more complicated, that's a whole more complicated than, than sitting here at a microphone. And, yes, and, and you're, and also, you got a staff. I, 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 I'm a military officer. I've had a staff. You know, yes, I've signed memos. Right. Yes, I reviewed the final thing, and I kind of double check. But right. there's people that are helping generate that product. I, I understand. Just, just so that you understand, <laughs> I checked a couple of days ago. We have fifteen thousand matters in process right now. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> and so it's impossible for me. Uh, yes. To, yeah, obviously, you're not the guy who's reviewing I, I every can't. single one it's of those impossible. Yes. It's impossible. Yeah. And I, no one would expect that from. Yeah. from I've actually had it. people expect. Oh, really? Me. Yeah. <laughs> well, you didn't care because you didn't read my letter. Oh, well, I, okay. I'm going yeah, like, yeah. what are you didn't, talking didn't, about? Didn't read the letter. No. Okay. Well. So yeah. I'm okay. just not important enough. Yeah. I mean, well. I've actually had people say that to me, and without any real idea about what the size of job that I do. Well, yeah, and you know, obviously, state offices have just the level of inputs being dumped in is much larger than you know, county commissioner, city council right. <laughs> type of thing. So, okay, we put the state law in place, and obviously, in Florida's case, it was to supersede or to preempt the federal mandate. Um, but one benefit we've seen from states that took that approach, as opposed to just playing it out in the courts, is that that also prevented private companies from implementing the mandate unilaterally. So we've seen this happen where some companies, you know, the OSHA mandate went away, but they say, no, we still want to do it anyway. So just from where you sit and your perspective and kind of your legal mind, does the state have the power to tell a private company whether it can or cannot require vaccination as a um, requirement for work? One of the powers reserved to the states in the in the 10th Amendment is the police power. Yes. The police power is the power to protect the health, safety, welfare, and morals of the people. And that's specifically what yes. that power is. Yep. So you ask the question, does the state have the power 
to protect the health and safety of the people? And the answer is yes, it does. Does that mean um, mandate vaccines? Does it mean not mandate vaccines? Those are policy questions to be determined ultimately the, the, by the legislature by the legislature yeah, yeah. and so that's that's the policy but you would aspect. say that but that but that those policies one way or the other would fall under the police power under the police power and would yeah. be legitimate yeah uh you you depends on how you write that legislation sure. i mean because you could write it in a way that clearly violated the law uh, obviously and and you could also write it in ways that it would comply with the law so but the basic starting point is is it part of the police power? And, and if it is part of the police power, the state holds the police power. The federal government does not have the police power. They would like it. They would like it, yeah. <laughs> as we saw in the OSHA stuff, Yeah, which is basically- But you're argument. saying that if, if this legislature did pass a law, you know, and it was under the guise of the police, not the guise, but it was under the legitimate use of the police power to protect public welfare, then that would be a legitimate use of- State power. That would be a legitimate use of state power. And I don't make the determination yes, that that's yes. a policy choice yeah, made by obviously, the but, but the policy itself, you say, yes, that is something that would fall under the- That's where the, the analysis would start. Okay. Correct. All right. Well, we are about to the end of the interview here. So just got one question. I'm going to ask you after that, what um, anything else you want to bring up before we close out? So does the attorney general's office have any role? I, I get asked this question a lot and I've kind of, you know, Googled around. So I'm going to ask you, is there a role for the attorney general's office when it comes to dealing with uh, corruption by government officials, even at the local level? Or, or is, is that something that your office plays a role in? Yes. Uh, and there's a statute again in Idaho yeah. Code Section 67-1401 that says that- I'll the- never be able to remember those, by the way. <laughs> That's Okay. It's not necessary that you remember okay. them. It's necessary that, that you remember that them. I remember. Them. Okay, good. And because I I have powers that are enumerated, yep. and I need to comply with them. But what it says is that um, if complaints made about violations of law by elected county officials, okay, that's that's the area that we have. So it isn't city. Mm-hmm. It isn't the library district. It is elected county officials. So it's not a county employee, elected county officials. And over my time in office, I have prosecuted actually by special prosecution, city and county officers uh, for violations of law. And yeah, we've done a lot of that. You asked a a question a little while ago and I I didn't fully answer it in terms of the legislature. Yeah, we we meet with legislators all the time and we help them write legislation. I I know there's some people who say, no, you don't. And the answer is yes, we do. (laughs) That's just nonsense. Uh, We help them uh, alter the the legislation, but we don't make their policy choices for them. And there's sometimes, I'll give you an example. One, One person brought the same piece of legislation eight years in a row that violated the United States Constitution. And I told him every time it violates the Constitution, he got upset and said, well, you always say my, you don't like me. You, know, you always say my legislation is unconstitutional. It doesn't have anything to do with whether I like him or not. It, it, it's the same analysis every year that the United States Constitution hadn't changed. It was still the same. Yep. And so I'm obligated to say, yeah, that doesn't, that doesn't pass constitutional muster. I mean, what, that's how I serve the people of the state by giving that straightforward legal advice, telling people sometimes things that they don't want to hear, but that they need to know. 
Um, I say it, it's uh, the Attorney General uh, calling balls and strikes fairly and squarely. And some people have said, well, we want to know if the Attorney General can throw a curveball. Why would you want your attorney to throw you a curveball? Don't you want them to give you the straight skinny uh, the best they can? That helps you make your decision the best you can. And if you want to accept legal risks and go forward, okay, then we'll litigate the case with you. But if you want to say, oh, maybe I don't want to take those legal risks, that's okay. We'll stick with you on that one too. It's just the same thing that your private lawyer does for you. He should tell you what kind of risks you have out there. You get to weigh those risks and you get to make the choice about whether you're going to go forward or not. We don't have to rehash this. You've gone through it. But I think, I still think we're, and I got to do some, maybe some of my own research, but just when I think about an elected official though versus my private lawyer. there are some differences there, but there's also some similar similarities in the sense that, you know, if I'm elected you, am I only electing you to purely represent some other client? I think that's where people get confused. It's like, no, if I go pick my lawyer, I want him to represent me. Well, I, I voted for the attorney general and then he's telling me that, well, you're not my you're not my client. I think that's the confusion there. I'm I'm you are my client collectively. You're not my client individually. Yeah. And and why is that? Here you say you want to do your own research. Do your own research. It's article um I think it's article 4 maybe. Yeah, article 4 section 1 of the Idaho Constitution which says that the duty of the constitutional officers is to perform their duties under the constitution and as prescribed by law. Okay? So maybe instead of asking, complaining to the attorney general, you're saying that people should say, well, if they want the attorney general's office's legal resources to be leveraged on behalf of the people in individual cases of violations of rights, then we need to ask the legislature to include that in your responsibilities. If, the, if that was included in my responsibilities, then that's what we would do. And because the legislature has passed a statute yeah. under the Constitution, it yep. says, this is what you do, A, B, C, and D. We're doing A, B, C, and D. It doesn't include X. Yeah. No, that makes sense. So your response is, hey, lobby your legislature. Yeah. It, and now, whether that makes good public policy or makes sense, mm-hmm. that's that's a whole separate question. I don't get to answer that question. But when it says I represent the state and I represent state entities and it yeah. names them, then that's who I represent. And there's a principle of law which says if something's included in the statute, then the other things are excluded. That's pretty yeah. standard way of of reading the statute. I mean, that's how the courts read the statute. And so the answer is- I don't know. Those common law powers are pretty- <laughs> Well, I don't know what those common <laughs> law Well, I, I don't know. I, I, and that, that's interesting because I'm going to look into that more because I'm, I'm curious if that's how other attorney generals, other attorney generals might be saying, hey, you know what? Under the common law powers, I have some authority to go and defend, you know- People whose rights have been violated by the federal government. That, that, that those you know. th- those those weren't the common law powers. They represented the king. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, we, yes, you're talking about the British system, obviously. Yeah. Well, hey, that was a really fun discussion. Um, thank you for coming and um, doing a second interview with us. Um, but I just want to give you the chance. So obviously, you're in the middle of a campaign. So are there any other issues you want to bring up before we close out the interview? Or where can people go to learn more about your campaign or support you if they're interested? Yeah, my my campaign is at lawrencewasden.com. That's all one word, lowercase, L-A-W-R-E-N-C-E-W-A-S-D-E-N.com. And uh, the one thing that is really important here is the rule of law. 
and that is I am bound by the law. And that's precisely what I have done, is I have in every instance said, what is the law? And that's what I've done. Abraham Lincoln said, be sure to put your feet, put your feet in the right place and stand firm. And that's what I've done. What does the law say? What does the Constitution say? And that's what I've done. And if we do that, if we find that there's, in fact, one of the other things Abraham Lincoln said, the best thing you can do for a bad law is enforce it. Yeah. Uh, so my job is to do exactly what the what the Constitution says. It's to do what the law says. And if I decide to do something other than what that is, I'm violating my oath of office, and I'm violating the rule of law, and I am violating the law. That I cannot do. Well, thank you for your time. Thank you. And for the rest of our listeners, the interview may be over, but the campaign season is far from over, and the election year is far from over. So thank you again for listening to Idaho Speaks. We've reached the end of the episode, but not the end of the issue. Please share this episode with your friends and family. If you have questions or would like to share your own issues and ideas, visit www.idahospeaks.com and click Share an Issue. Your state, your voice, Idaho Speaks.